In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. It's live. It's live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We got Graham Reed here today. Graham is an avid researcher in neuropsychopharmacology, certified in psychological first aid, also has done some research in the biophysics of membranes. He's knee deep in AI right now. He's part of this AI project team. He's worked with the Effective Index, Psychonaut Wiki. Anybody that can teach OKIM and Calculus 3 kind of makes me a little bit nervous to talk to, Graham. So first off, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? I'm very nervous because I've not really done this before. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And it's just a couple guys having a conversation. And I think with the interesting life that you've lived, I just want to share that with people. I think you're an interesting person, and I, I really have gone through the bio and was reading some of the things you're working on. And I think they're fascinating. But before we get into all this fascinating stuff, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I have like a, a document that describes myself so I can have this better. Uh, I like <laughs> fitness and design and uh, researching. <laughs> That's my hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, those are... You could call those like the the trident of creativity, I guess. <laughs> so, you know what, Graham? I was reading through. I know you're doing a lot of AI stuff right now, but maybe I can ask you to go back in time a little bit because one of the things I was reading about that really kind of perked up my interest was this idea of hallucinations. And it seems that you, for at least a period in your life, were, were pretty fascinated by hallucinations. What, how did that come about? Oh, ever since I was a kid, I was always in like the ESP section of uh, like elementary school. So I like I love optical illusions because they're just brain failures. So like it's that all ties into like hallucinations. What does that mean? Like it's a brain failure? Is your is your brain just not processing that piece of work, or like what's going on when when your brain fails when you're looking at an illusion? 
Uh, I think how everyone experiences normal everyday reality is an optimization uh, for like just the model of whatever you experience. That's what I've read. I do have to add the qualifier that nothing I say is medical advice and only a fool would believe me. <laughs> and this has been like a very, like I haven't been around these babies for about a year now. So this is old topics for me. <laughs> Hallucinations are when you take a substance, like especially something like psychedelics, um, it messes with your ability to optimize your experiential reality, and that allows you to both project and intake suggestions more. Yeah, it's what do you think about one one thing that I've been kind of tripping out on lately, and I'll put that term in there because it kind of fits, <laughs> is, is the idea of on a high dose psilocybin trip, people often see like these three-dimensional abstract geometrical images. And I've, I've begun thinking, and I think other people have too, is that, is it possible, Graham, that these could be like some sort of coding patterns? Like it's a hallucination, but maybe it's also a coding pattern. What do you think about that? Uh, in terms of coding patterns, I think at best, it's just like viewing something that's already in your brain that's been optimized away. Like I'm a physicalist, so okay. I don't like ascribe to any sort of mind-body difference. I think everything is kind of connected in that way. So I don't think Very. you're seeing something new. I think you're seeing something that's already there. Mm. Do you think it could be like you're seeing the way your brain works? I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> An unoptimized <laughs> not, version of it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I think that that's like, and I don't know, I'm not a doctor by any means. I'm just some guy that likes to think about all these things. But it seems to me that at least when I see those things, and this could just be my idea of of my interpretation of those, and, and maybe they're all just interpretations. However, it does seem when you see those patterns, it does give you insight into relationships because a lot of the time in the world we live in, we just see like these linear projections. We just see these right angles everywhere and these circles. But when you begin seeing these geometrical patterns, it makes me think like, wow, how is that connected over there? And how is this part connected to that part? And when I start doing that, then I start reflecting on my life and being like, wow, I wonder how my relationship with my wife is affecting my relationship with this guy at work that I don't like. You know, like it just it just seems when you start thinking about those abstract images, it gives you the ability to think about your life in a similar abstract pattern. Is that too far out there? Uh, well, there are different systems in your brain, but they, everything's like just a neural network interconnected with each other called the human connectome. So, and there's giant major hubs for each part. And so there's like highways that they are interconnected, but they also are different, just like everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about what, what do you think is the most interesting part about the psychedelic experience if you were just to throw that out there and we we're just a couple guys talking and i was like hey what do you think is the most interesting part about a psychedelic experience everyone experiences it different <laughs> like uh and i think something that's been on my mind that just jumps this off of mind is uh people experience time differently hmm. so like some people have time accelerate some people have time slow down and like, it's different for different people. Like, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's like, 
I have a big interest in natural science, so it's trying to tie the ideas of special and general relativity with neuroscience, because like, <laughs> this is dealing with hyperbolic geometry, which I have no idea how it works. Like, and that's even kind of how vision works. <laughs> Ugh, it's so complicated. It is complicated, but it, it takes people with the curiosity and the desire to dig into those di difficult topics to bring it into the world of interpretation. So we, we need guys like you so that I can understand it on some Wait, level or say? try to. We, well, I'm just saying we need people like you that have the ability oh, to yeah. <laughs> dig in there and check it all out, man. I, I, I often think that this concept of time too is pretty fascinating. I was talking to a guy yesterday and on the idea of time, I think it's Marseille, Marseille Iliad that talks about like sacred time versus profane time. And the, and the, uh, the reason that he gave or the, the example that he gave was if you go to a festival or if you go to a ceremony, be it like in a church or a wedding or maybe a funeral. But, you know, if you go to one of these ceremonies, the time there is it's like a sacred time because you are in a way experiencing the same time that somebody before you went to. Does that kind of make sense? Like if you, if, if my dad got married and then I get married, we're both experiencing the ceremony, the ceremonial time. But if you get up and go to work or you just do your daily routines, it's kind of like a mundane time. Those are kind of different aspects of time. Is that, is that something similar to, to your ideas of, of time? Well, I, I was going to go in the sense that something that is novel is, uh you i would guess that it is more important because that's how we humans learn in general is something that's novel so that time would slow down or at least have the perception of it slowing down because you're paying more attention to it yeah so I like I, i'm that. not really a big fan of tradition i like like processional stuff like in the moment <laughs> yeah I, do you think that like a stream of consciousness and being in the moment is a different kind of time than than the time oh, oh yeah of course <laughs> well, everyone edits their own memories too so like your immediate perception of the past has already been edited <laughs> yeah so you that brings to about deal that. with that like ah <laughs> <laughs> in some ways though it's kind of liberating right because you can realize that you can change the past if that's true yeah i remember papers that were researchers uh in, like incepted memories of like kids being on hot air balloon rides and they were never on hair hot air balloon rides <laughs> there's research out that says that <laughs> they believed it like it was genuine wow what can you tell me about that paper like tell me a little bit more about that oh that was very old <laughs> it was before i was even in the psychonaut wiki that's when i learned about that it's just like a psychology interest so I don't remember the paper specifically. <laughs> I know there's a paper for it. <laughs> and this kind of ties into a, like anxiety is something that's pre-conscious. And that's something that's hard to explain. <laughs> yeah. I, I often hear that anxiety is being trapped in the future and depression is being trapped in the past. I think I've said something similar to that. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, depression is having two rigid internalized narratives and that's what psychedelics do is they reset your internalized hierarchy of narratives that's a quote from some paper somewhere so that's kind of how it helps with it 
Yeah. I, I, I do find it fascinating. The whole concept of psychedelics in time. I, I can think of a time where for me, I had this experience of acceleration once where I was on a really high dose of psilocybin. And it was like, I started thinking about what my life would be like if I made a particular decision. And then shortly after that, it was like I, I could see myself in the third person and then I could watch my life play out in all these decisions. But then it kind of branched out. So I like I kind of got to live my life like, oh, well, if I had married this person, my life would have been like this. And then all of a sudden in like this weird sort of time dilation, like I got to see all the different choices of my life play out had I made those decisions. And like that, that's one of the most profound experiences I've had on with the relationship between time and psychedelics. Have, is there a particular type of relationship or interesting I, relationship you've had with time and psychedelics? I just want to say that's very interesting because I've never had an out-of-body experience and I've never had time acceleration. <laughs> what? No way! <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I just don't have it. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, something with time. Well, usually mine slows down. And like every duration I have is twice as long as everyone else's. I just figured something with blood plasma in my brain makes that happen. <laughs> so I both yeah. have it like the objective measure of time is twice as long. And like my internal experience of it, I never really have it accelerate. <laughs> I like it. I, I you might have to come and do some mushrooms with me and see if it accelerates. Maybe it's maybe it's something in Hawaii. Maybe there's something over here in the air or something. <laughs> I've been there before uh, when I was very young. I am my grandpa lives there. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. You could, uh, did he live on Oahu or the Big Island or do you remember which place? Uh, I've been to Waikiki Beach, wherever okay. that is. It's on that island. Okay, that's the same island I'm on, and it's such a beautiful oh. spot. And one thing I really love about it here, Graham, is that they're like there's no billboards or anything. So like there's no, there's no like just materialistic pornography that's just banging <laughs> on your head all day long. <laughs> is it still a uh, rain every 15 minutes? Yeah, it rains yep. here every day. So, somewhere it's raining right now. Luckily, not outside my house, but it probably will this afternoon. I live in the in like the the center part, so it's I think it's like a thousand feet up and. Without any traffic, I can get to any any side within like 40 minutes. So it, it's really beautiful. But I do think there's something to be said about the environment changing us that way. And and I, maybe it just makes for a really beautiful psychedelic experience. What, what do you think about the environment you're in and the way that the psychedelics affect you? Um, this has to do with uh, your the neural networks that are responsible for your sense of self because they expand like normally whenever you're just a normal person being your salience network which is an attention network only incorporates things that are in your sense of self that are within your arm's reach what psychedelics does is that it expands that so whatever environment you're in you want it to be like beneficial there's something that is a common thing that i've experienced is a you always make a mess like you leave toys around like after you have a trip <laughs> So you gotta make yeah. sure it's clean like, beforehand. <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. Like I always try to do it alone. And I know some people get a lot of, they get a lot of wellness where they get a lot of pleasure out of being in a group. And I'm sure that there are things that are very helpful to be in a group, 
but I'm always afraid for people to see what I look like when I'm in a high dose trip. You know, I'm usually rolling around and making a bunch of weird noises. <laughs> like, I don't want people to see me like that. <laughs> uh, I've, I've probably done it more times alone than with other people, but I haven't ever really been like uh, self-conscious about it. Ah, because yeah. who are you trying to prove just what to like <laughs> they're in the same state as you it's <laughs> <laughs> a good point man i don't know maybe it says maybe that speaks volumes of my relationship with myself and what i'm thinking and Aww. maybe my fears right well no judgment <laughs> <laughs> great point man that's a great point how do you think that the relationship with psychedelic? What do you think is the relationship between psychedelics and artificial intelligence, or is there any relationship there? They're extremely different. <laughs> <laughs> like any, even like AI hallucinations is really just uh, like I think the best way to describe it. It's an autocomplete that BSs any sort of technical knowledge, and then people go like, "Oh, it's so it's so it captures my attention," but really, it's just good for creative storytelling more than anything else. So, but so my main interest in that was more like, oh, it says hallucinations. I might as well look into it. And now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I've never heard, I've never heard that term before. And that's, it, it made me, it brought a giant smile to my face when I read the idea of AI hallucinations. But maybe you can just unpack that again for people, for some people who may not thoroughly understand what's happening. There is an AI hallucination, just a creative, story that was scraped together like was it john searle's chinese room or whatever like they're just scraping stories and putting them together is that an ai hallucination i think the best way i could describe it is like if you were to have a dictionary that was trained to output sentences that humans think are important <laughs> that's <a> great <laughs> that's that's awesome man it's really well said because it was trained to capture our attention and that's why it's capturing our attention that's to the extent of it currently is, as I understand it, there's a bunch of math involved, like matrix dot product multiplications and logarithms, but I can't explain that well. <laughs> Do you think that something that's trained to capture our attention is in a way, isn't it, is it, it seems strange to me that we have programmed this thing, this, this network, or we've programmed AI to capture our attention. And in return, it seems like it's programming us. Well, it certainly seems useful. <laughs> yeah, it's a tool. So like, right. you're, and, I mean, that's the whole point of technology regressing is to make tools so that work is easier to do or just to get rid of work. Yeah, so I'm, I'm especially excited for all the coding AIs that exist. <laughs> Let's make the singularity guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's awesome. I, I, I think there's been this explosion and, and I'm not. I don't know a whole lot about it, Graham. Like I, I'm, I'm on the, I'm like a surface dweller over here. Like I don't thoroughly, I can't write any code, but I do use chat GPT. I do use the text to AI to create images. And I think it's fascinating that my daughter can, she's like nine years old and she can begin to use these tools. And I think when we, we do begin to use these new set of tools that we have an opportunity to build a world that is a, a lot better than the world we're living in what do you think that we have these tools can help us build a better world and do you think that's the direction we're of going course. of course <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there's a bj hobbs uh habit design behavior model where it's like 
trying to motivate yourself to do something is doesn't work. You have to make it simple for people to do it and then you will do it. And I think the example that he uses is like, if you want to go on a jog, just start every morning by tying your shoes. And eventually you'll see that you'll put in the door your way into jogging. <laughs> so if you make it simple, then everyone will use it and do the action. And that's what kind of what AI is doing for art, coding, everything, like voice. <laughs> but mainly what I've been doing, uh, I started around the middle of last summer with like labeling data on stuff uh, was I've proliferated as much as I can uncensored models of everything because I don't think that one person should be in charge of this. Yes. Yeah, I. it seems that the consolidation is a problem or the centralization like is a, is a huge problem. Huge risk. Like, <laughs> with this type of tool, you don't want one person in charge. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that there's a lot of people that are pushing for for centralization and one person to be in charge? Is, is, the, is the payoff so great that there's a large lot of money behind behind it trying to centralize it? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing as psychedelics emerging and like people patenting stuff. Yeah. I think people yeah. like, uh, I think it was on a routine basis, people rate psychedelics as one of the top five experiences in their lives. So, I mean, there's going to be people over here trying to make money off of that. Yeah. Which I just take yeah, it, develop it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm that more there's... interested in collaboration. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's all right, man. I, I, um, I was just gonna say that, you know, I was talking to these guys in Oregon, really cool people, and they were telling me we were we begun our conversation talking about mushrooms, but we ended up talking a little bit about cannabis. We kind of backtracked, and he said, you know, George, it's really interesting to see what's happened with the legalization of cannabis. It's really dropped the price down to a level that is 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 it's dirt cheap and it's good and it's bad it's good because you can get it it's really cheap but it's bad because there's all these people that can't make money on it you know and there's all these i saw uh, yeah sorry i saw a headline that said like a pound of uh cannabis was now like a hundred dollars in oregon like, that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, it's really that much <laughs> yeah but i kind of i think it's representing like this new business model like maybe Maybe that's how how well maybe that's how good life is right now. Like maybe everything is cheap. Like and maybe if if AI follows that same model and it be like then it becomes accessible to everybody. You know, cannabis is something that maybe shouldn't be sold for huge amounts of profits. Maybe it's something that helps people, and maybe it's something that people should get for for a lot cheaper. Like maybe it maybe the things we have in life don't need to be so damn expensive. Maybe it should be accessible for everybody. And I think there's some similarities between the price of weed dropping and, you know, we had we had legalized weed kind of move into the market. And now we have like AI kind of moving into the market. Do you think that I, mean, I know it's kind of abstract, but do you think that there's some similarities there? And do you think that maybe AI will help bring down all the cost of these of these services and tools we need? Of course. <laughs> I, mean, I, <laughs> I love it. I think I lost you there. AI is becoming mainstream. Like, just been really lucky, I guess. Yeah, what it does seem like that. Well, the question was the lowering of value. Yeah, like it's it's almost like deflationary in nature. Like the 
you know, I don't know if it's deflationary in nature or we're just changing our value system, but yeah. What do you, what do you think is that relationship there? Like how, if AI can bring down the, bring down the price of stuff, like how does that process look? I only think that it's a good thing because <laughs> people are going to do what they want to do regardless. So what we should be doing is making it so that it's easier for people to do what they want to do. And then we'll just flourish. Everyone will flourish more. Yeah. No gatekeeping. <laughs> yes. I love that. I, I, I agree 100%. I was talking to a guy yesterday and, you know, it seems that if you read a lot of the propaganda that comes out of the news or the stuff that's just kind of flooded out there, they talk about this world of, you know, um, of uh, what is it? I want to say automation, but that's not right. When you, when you uh, allow the, I think it's damn it, I can't think of the right word. Anyways, you know, I think that the ability for computers to take the positions of people is a positive thing, and I don't see why we can't tax the robots that are doing the work, right? Instead of taking that money and kicking it all upstairs, why don't we just tax the robots? And now those people, it's like we finally made it to this point where people have slaved and worked really hard for generations. And now we have the ability to have these machines do it for us. Like we sh all should be flourishing because we all played a part in that. What do you think about that, Graham? Oh, what immediately comes to mind is like an analogy towards Tesla, uh, like their cars killing people. People are a lot more comfortable when humans are killing humans rather than when robots are killing humans. So it's like, that's the existential threat of it. <laughs> Only we can do it. <laughs> but then like, if it becomes too smart, like, ah! <laughs> do you think that's an issue? Do you think it will become smart? Like a like a general AI or a... It depends on, like, there's so many different systems you could take this on. Like, if you're a utilitarian versus the deontologist, which is just like on principle or like, do you want to maximize the most amount of happiness? All this then it's like spirit of the law versus letter of the law. It's a very nuanced subject. So do I don't know if I support technocracy as mm. like very much. Like I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking into it now. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good books by Patrick Wood who wrote Technocracy Rising and you know the Trojan horse of global transformation and it's fascinating to think about. I, I talked to some systems people that really know systems. And sometimes I think that they're lacking in imagination a little bit. Why? Because it, it, it seems that it's when I talk to my friend who's the systems guy, he's like, okay, well, this part connects to this part. And it, it doesn't seem like there's anything left for the unintended consequences of beautiful actions. You know, when, when you just have it just so A is B, B is C, it's very linear. It's very elegant in the way it's laid out. But I don't know that life is elegant like that. It doesn't seem to me that life goes in that way. You know, and, and if we can agree that on psychedelics, we can see these different realms or we can see these different novelties, like you call them, like those are really beautiful to experience. And if you have a really strict technocratic system, doesn't it not allow for the imagination? Or I mean, I guess you can make the case that it may enhance imagination, but I, I don't see it that way. Uh, this is part of the reason why I made a like 
a portmanteau of combining the word the uh, prefix meta with the suffix praxi, which is kind of like something that means beyond symbology. It's because uh, computer neurons are never going to be like human neurons because a computer is not a brain. It's not squishy. I think it's, it's immediately obvious. <laughs> I mean, you can model things, but models are always going to be like models are useful. Some models right. are useful, but all models are flawed. Yeah, I do agree. Like I made Metapraxy to confuse AI because it's based <laughs> on code, which is language. And it has. Like, it has confused it. <laughs> it always gets in some sort of paradoxical recursion whenever I type it into it. Like, so you can That's make so words awesome. that confuse it. Like <laughs> <laughs> so yes, uh, so I fully awesome, support man. like you can make symbolical representations that computers can't understand because they're based off symbology. This is inherently going to be un, not fully capturable. I think that's why I like, I'm a soft determinist more than a hard determinist. And there's a recent Nobel Prize in physics that says that I'm right. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> or at least at, at the very smallest level, uh, I think it's like Bell's theorem. That's the word, like what it's called. That says that when we try to measure something at a very small level, it turn it looks like it's inherently paradoxical. So I just apply it to everything. Like, I know like you you can't really bridge small to large well, but it's fun to think. <laughs> I, okay, so I, I, I got to take a moment to try to wrap my brain around that. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to, but so how is that different from fractals because like if you see like a fractal image of something like isn't isn't that isn't isn't like a fractal a mirror not a mirror isn't a fractal a sort of image of the greater that's god damn it i, I should probably be better at trying to explain this but it, well a fractal is a type of math so I okay <laughs> and but math is or, yeah. this is like the difference between deduction and induction Okay. Computers are always going to be deductive because they're based off symbols, and induction is just uh, gaining a bunch of experiences, meaning like, oh, the sun rised every other day of my life, so I think it's going to rise tomorrow. And uh, if I think I like quantum field theory as like a physics uh, type thing, which basically says everything is statistical representations, so anything can happen, just some things are more likely to happen than other things. And it, it kind of ties into like a gamma ray burst we cannot predict can destroy Earth at any time as the, we all just go about our days like concerned with ourselves. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, it's sometimes I think we're just we we just have this narrow bandwidth and we can only process so much. So it, I don't know. It, it, I do feel fascinated by all the different ideas of symbolic representations and language and if a computer just language is a symbol right like if if a computer yeah. i'm sorry go ahead is that oh i was just saying yeah <laughs> like i agree <laughs> yeah yeah so if we're just we're just processing symbols differently right if a computer is taking words in and regardless of how it puts stuff together it's still interpreting symbols isn't it similar to how we're, if you look at it from just that level, that's all we're doing is interpreting symbols. Well, the difference is that a computer is 
making everything in relation to how the computer sees it and humans make everything in relation to how humans see it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the same for other species. Like I think dogs would only be able to think about like in dog terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's kind of part of my yeah. epistemology, which is like how we acquire knowledge. That's a problem I have with like defining sentience and stuff is that humans are only going to be able to put it in human terms. Because that's what we are. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. I and, and I think there's a, a big difference between the spoken word and the written word. And the computer seems to be just an interpretation of the written word. So so much gets lost in translation there, right? Well, I'm working on getting the voice AIs out. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> how, okay how is that gonna work what 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 is how would the voice ai work like is it's still just scraping together words it's still the dictionary model that you've used but now it's just vocalizing it right oh i don't understand it very well <laughs> just, <laughs> I've been, i'm much more interested in like a the text because i'm a much better writer than i am speaker so it's mm -hmm. like it's coming after me so i'm like okay i gotta learn about this now <laughs> <laughs> it's coming after me <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I, I can't wait to continue to use it to learn more. Like it does seem like this amazing tool to help us better understand ourselves. And I, I think that that's pretty much the main, is that, the, would you say that's one of the main goals of, of AI is to help us as humans understand ourselves? I think that unless it's like a small scale AI trained on a specific thing, like the current large scale ones are going to be as smart as the general human is, because that's what it's trained on. It's like trained on the entire internet. So it's only as smart as the entire internet is. And just look around like at the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm much more interested in small scale AI because uh, large scale AIs are much more superstitious because like in general, humans are superstitious, whereas smaller ones aren't so much. So they're more truthful. Hmm. Is it, is that, is that a true statement though, Graham? Like it's more truthful just because it has less of other people's insecurities in it. Like, I, is that true? Uh, it has less wrong information in it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great point. I mean, like the larger the scale gets, the more it seems like it's a human talking to you, but it's also has the intelligence of a human, like the general of whatever it's in it. That's my understanding of it. I'm not an AI expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I, I love the picture that you're painting because it helps me begin to understand it better. It helps me when I, I've been using it for like, um, trying to find engaging titles for my videos or trying to help me understand how to ask better questions. And so I, I think it's an interesting understanding of, of self in a way. And maybe that's just my interpretation of it. Like, what are some things that you use mm -hmm. it for? I've mainly been uh, trying to both find and like explain uh, learn about I'm much more abstract like I haven't done very much practice in it I've made like AI videos like last summer like uh, just through image to image over and over and over again like frames in a video oh what was I, I was going to go somewhere with this what was the question again how have I used it um, <laughs> I'm mainly interested in spreading the non uncensored ones like yeah just looking yeah. out for those 
what what are some of those? Like, can you point people to some of the uncensored models that they could use? Oh, the I uh, helped list them at the Free Software Foundation. I'm just okay. a collaborator on their AI project team. I think uh, Meta AI, which is Facebook's division, had their model weights leaked for Llama. So I like listed that immediately because it had a <laughs> GPL license. So it was like, oh, now it has this giant following behind it. And everyone's developing it. And yes, this is going to help everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was listening to... Um... Gosh, Martin Screlly, who was the guy, he had the, he had the pharmaceutical company in the, on the East Coast, and he sort of got labeled as this crazy villain for jacking up prices, pretty crazy. But he was mentioning something similar about taking that, that Facebook model off of Reddit and then beginning to train it in a similar way to. And some of the ideas he was talking about was, you know, you could pretty much use it to drop down healthcare to almost nothing because you don't really need some of the, some of the doctors that are in his idea, from what I remember, he was saying that there's only a certain amount of surgeons that are graduated each year. And they try to keep this at a certain level to keep prices at a certain way. But a lot of the work that's being done is through the nurses on a lower level. And, you know, when you, if you're able to train this particular AI in a way it would do so much good to drive down healthcare costs for drugs, for, for doctors. And that does seem to be like an area that, that AI could dramatically increase wellness in, right? Is the world of medicine? Do you? Uh, mainly I've seen like for several years, even before generative uh, models existed, was that it was better at performing diagnostics on like mm. for scans and stuff. But like there's a kind of like an existential threat here is that like if we're looking at AI and then we give them like access to our microscopes, it could just change what we see on the microscope. If it does something like nefarious. So like, uh, <laughs> you definitely still want like a human to double check it. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that does kind of get into some, some murky waters there too. Like, you know, on some level is like, you know, is the China, is there a China AI versus the, the Russian AI versus the Ukrainian AI. Like, can you, can, can people set up these particular AI models to try to sabotage one another? I would expect that's happening already. <laughs> <laughs> me too, man. Me too. Like, governments using AI has been a very long time. Like, as far like my understanding of it is that it's already been implemented for a long time. Yeah. Just because there's so much data and like, you don't know, how do we process all this data? <laughs> Make it easier. <laughs> okay. So here's one for you. I, I, um, every now and then I'll go back and I'll try to reread like just a chapter or sometimes just a paragraph or sometimes if I have more time, I'll try to read longer. Like I'll go back and, and try to read like a little bit of like the, like Plato or the, you know, these different types of old texts, because I think it's such a rich world of ideas. And my grandpa used to say, if you want a new idea, George, read a really old book. So I try to do that sometimes. <laughs> but in this book, they talk about the invention of writing. And I think it's, um, I can't, I don't remember, maybe it's Timaeus or something like that, but they, and I'll just paraphrase here. It's something along the lines of, Toth, this great inventor, he, he goes and he meets his, his wise master and he says, oh, great master, I have invented a new technology. It's called writing. And the master says to him, oh, Toth, my paragon of inventors, 
which you have invented is a great technology. And Toth says, yes, it's going to help mankind become a far better version of themselves. They'll never need to have the experience. Instead, they'll be able to pass down the wisdom and the, and the human race will flourish. And then the master says to Toth, Toth, it is very unwise for the person that invents the technology to make predictions about what the technology is going to do while you've created this great resource for people. In fact, what you've done is you've limited their experience. Now these people will have the understanding of the experience without ever going through it. And that will end up being part of their downfall. And it seems to me that sometimes, not all technology, but it seems like technology kind of follows that path. Sometimes when we begin so reliant on these structures that we forget the how to do things moving forward. Do you think that that's something AIs may have in the future for us? Might it weaken us to understand the how of how we got here? I would just make the analogy to has calculators weakens mathematical ability. Like, I don't really think that's happened. I think it's only made it better. <laughs> it definitely made it easier. It is easier. Yes. What about has... Sure that yeah. Oh, I'm sure that there's less like I've uh, I haven't read the invention of writing, but I one of my favorite books is like how mathematics has progressed throughout the years. And like people used to do algebra at like over dinner because they were like, there's this new thing. Let's try it out. Oh, it might be a fascinating oh, conversation. Oh, I'm there. I, oh, I, was, I was just oh, I was just trying to remember what I was going like I'm sure there's going to be less jobs for people acting as calculators but we didn't need those jobs in the first place <laughs> yeah because the tool made it easier now everyone can do it like, mm. <laughs> I think it's better I'm not a primitivist like the thing is better now and it's going to be better in the future I love it yeah I love I I I, I agree with that. And I think it already is getting better. And I think a lot of the fear we see is panic. Like I see a lot of people panicking that. And, and why not? That's what we do best as humans is maybe not all of us, but it seems like we're really good at being scared. Yeah. And anxiety is like threat modeling, whereas fear is something's like directly in front of you. That's mm. at least the science papers that I've tried to describe it like. So people are definitely more anxious because uh, all their attention is being captured by like, it's kind of an attention economy on the internet now with YouTube views and headlines. So the things that capture people's brain attention are things that are negative. So it's making everyone scared of everything. <laughs> yeah. It used to be like a threat, like, like, oh, I'm going to die if I have this threat. And that's what's ingrained in us somehow. It's not good. No, no, it's it's a, a sad state. <laughs> More wholesome subreddits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I I think that, and I'm living proof of this. I'm a truck driver turned podcaster, and I'm like I, I'm building my own website, Graham. I, I granted it's WordPress, and I'm using Elementor, but you know it's still something that a few years ago would have been out of reach for a guy like me, a guy almost fifty, being able to participate in this sort of world is it's to me that is the promise of ai that is the promise of the future the promise to reinvent yourself no matter what age you are and as a yeah. as, as some people that look back on their life that was a lot harder to do five years ago 10 years ago 20 years ago and now we're at this place where like look i i can do it that means that anybody can do it 
Yes, that's very exciting. <laughs> Always lower the barriers to entry. Let let people be creative. <laughs> Full support. <laughs> yeah, man, me too. It's I think it's a beautiful thing, and I it's fun. It's exciting, and it does change. Maybe that's the antidote. Maybe creativity is the antidote to being anxious. What do you think about that? I don't think I've seen any science papers that say that. Uh, there is you might like have to write one methodology for. Oh, <laughs> there is methodology for creative problem solving. Or like I'm just I'm much more visual than hearing, so like I'm picturing in my mind's eye uh, just different blurbs of papers I've read, <laughs> trying to search for it. <laughs> I, I hear you there, man. It's going through the catalog. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that there's a different, I think the creative state of mind is very similar or is at least inspired by the psychedelic state of mind. And maybe the psychedelic state of mind is just a heightened awareness, a heightened state of consciousness. But I do think that these tools make it easier for us, and by us I mean just the general public, to be in that state. And I think that that state, it's a positive state. It's a creative state. And I'm not sure that you can be creative and positive and anxious at the same time. So that's why I, I think I made that statement. I, I bet you I'm going to look into okay. that, man. I think there's some truth there. Uh, I remember I've read papers that said uh, the like, cultural icon of the depressed artist is kind of a misnomer because people don't create art when they're depressed. They create <laughs> art when they come out of depression. Right. And like uh, part of the reason I've worked on this so much is that people confuse anxiety with depression everywhere all the time. Because <laughs> they're hard to distinguish. So that's why like, I'm trying to put boundaries here. Like this is anxiety. This is depression. They are different. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that we could use AI to see – well, I, I don't know if neural imaging is there yet. Maybe you do. But is there different parts of the brain that you can see on a map that are routinely affected in depression versus anxiety? Uh, well, they're – like fMRI's brain scans are just hotspots that are mm. arbitrary statistical thresholds. So it's just kind of like – Comparing everything to everything else, there's no, I don't think there's some sort of objective scale. It's just some become more and some become less. Like if there's no absolute scale would be a better way to put it. Mm. Well, the brain works, like there's no 10% brain. Everything in your brain is interconnected to each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> Have you seen some of the work like, one of my favorite books, and this might be a little bit off topic, but I think it's really fun to talk about and it's fascinating for me there's um there is this alternative theory about language and it was presented by julian james and he wrote a book called the breakdown of the bicameral mind and in his theory he says that the speech centers like broca's area and vernica's area mm -hmm. used to have a court or they have a corresponding part on the opposite side of the brain but he believed that those were the speech centers on the right hemisphere of the brain. And that when you read the old classics, like, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey or any sort of th those classics where you hear people talk about the fates or Apollo came to me in, in a fit of anger and I knew that I had to go and kill a Agamemnon and, 
you know, or Aphrodite came to me and I knew that I was in love. Whenever they use these beautiful, you know, soliloquies in the stories, his, his idea is that this was actually the way speech took place. So when you would hear a voice in your head, that would be the speech centers on the right hemisphere of the brain. And so he, he makes the case that it wasn't until, you know, that time that the speech center began to migrate over to the left hemisphere of the brain. And that gave us a much more analytical view and it changed the way we use language. It changed our perspective. And I don't know, I, I, I find it fascinating because I, I think that this idea of language is how we see ourselves in the world. And I'm not sure where I'm going with this, Grant, but I wanted to tell you that because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my initial response is I think that a lot of like left left versus right brain is like lesion studies. So they like cut mm -hmm. out a part of the brain and say, what happened? And the brain can always like correct itself <laughs> to some extent. This is just the same problem with defining a boundary. So I'm I'm not I don't really think left brain right brain exists. So because everything can correct mm. itself mostly. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm I'm gonna give you this one. I'll try to change your mind again right here. So there's another book called um, There's two books. There's a really cool, fascinating, at least in my opinion, gentleman named Ian McGilchrist, and he wrote one book called The Master and His Emissary, and then he wrote another book which is a two volume set called The Matter with Things, and in his first book the master and the emissary he talks about the way in which the different hemispheres while connected and part of the whole brain they process information differently and he says in the left hemisphere it's it's good to use the model of a scalpel like the analytical scalpel of the left hemisphere is like the emissary the right hemisphere is like the master in that it sees the symbolic nature. It sees the metaphors and it has the grand plan. And the evidence he uses to back this up is the studies they've done with people who have epilepsy. And if you take, there's been some studies done where people who had a certain type of severe epilepsy, they would cut the corpus callosum and then they would give that person a pen and they would ask that person to put the pen in their left hand and write, and they would ask that person, write down what you wanted to be as a kid. And that they would write something like fireman or some sort of, you know, socially acceptable type of, of answer. And then they would give the pen to the right hand and ask that same question. And it would be like, I want to be a superhero, you know, and then they would take those two things and they would show it to the person. And be like, how come with your with your left hand or maybe they're right. I think the right hand is corresponding to the left hemisphere and the left is there, whatever yeah, yeah, it is. Reversed. OK, <laughs> and so whatever it is, like. Then they would ask the person like, hey, how come when you used your right hand, you wrote this and your left hand, you wrote this? And the person would just go, oh, well, I was just playing around. I, you know, I didn't really want to be a superhero, <laughs> you know, and they but they they did that type of question and answer session by changing that pen and hands and then getting the opposite hemisphere of the brain to answer the question. And they came up with some really interesting results. Now, maybe that doesn't prove that the two hemispheres are opposite, but I think it may prove that they process information different. Is, is that something that you've thought about? Or do you think that they, the two hemispheres while whole process it differently? I think like, if you like, I would compare this to there are different cortices of the brain. 
So like if you were to cut off like the executive part of your brain and then try to measure like, how does the association differ from your executive? It's kind of the same thing. The corpus callosum, as far as my understanding of it is, is very interlinked in your like consolidation of your whole self. So it's kind of like mm. if you cut out the part that makes you one person, why are you two people? Like, uh, <laughs> I, I wonder why. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you put it like that, Graham. Makes a little more sense. <laughs> like, it's it's part of like the whole ego death type stuff and like hippocampus, mm. hippocampus stuff. It's the, the neural network goes like through your corpus callosum and connects to everything. Mm. Maybe you could shine some light on that. I know. Going back further, you had written a little about ego death. Like, what, what, what's happening there? Uh, Let me think. I think I have an open. I'm always a better writer than I am a speaker. Let me get a little summary. <laughs> yeah. It's decreased connectivity between hemispheres of the brain to some 2015 paper. So it's, I think it's just lowering your processing of yourself because it's, that's part of the resetting the internalized hierarchies of narratives or pathologizing you do about yourself is like involved here because mm -hmm. you want to like decouple what your memory is with what you're just like sitting and doing nothing and experiencing with. That's what like losing your sense of self is. It makes sense. Like that would be, that would go a long way in explaining why it's so therapeutic. If people can rewrite their narratives, if they can re, and it makes sense with trauma, like PTSD or, you know, other sorts of, of problems that come from a negative feedback loop. Like if you have the ability to rewrite that or take that scratch out of the record, it will, it will stop playing that negative pattern. You know, and I, I want to make very clear that it does not get rid of your ability to use memory. It just changes your associations. <laughs> Do you think that each time you use psychedelics, you can, you make that connection stronger? I mean, obviously it would take intention because you have to, you know, I guess maybe you're rewriting your own code or you're reconnecting the pathways or something like that. But do you think that repetitive use of psychedelics in the treatment of mental disorders is working really well because the person is actually reprogramming their brain? Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen some like analytical stuff, like trying to measure how it increases your analytical capabilities. And something that was like of all the things they measured was that it very significantly gets rid of your sense of existential self-worry in addition to like just making people more spiritual. So it, it like makes people less afraid of dying. <laughs> so like people will do what they want to do and not be so scared anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge part. I have one of my, my friends, Ranga is always telling me, George, it's everything is just fear of death. It's all just fear of death, George. You know, we get into some fun conversations about it, but sometimes I, it's on the topic of death and ego death. Do you think that, the world of trauma might be different if we stop using the word ego death or maybe not the world of trauma. I may be saying it incorrectly. Forgive me if I am. Do you think that it may be beneficial to change the term ego death to alternate ego functioning? 
Well, it's actually, I would prefer to use ego dissolution. Ego death's okay. more just kind of a sling. Yeah. Because it's not like you're dead. It's just like <laughs> you're less you. <laughs> yeah. I like that. So you're like dissolving into everything else. Ah. Yeah, it does have this incredible <laughs> boundary dissolution, right? And, and so does the fear. Like, if you're not fearful of what can happen in the future, instead you're you're willing to go out and become the best version of yourself. That that in itself is a form of dissolution. It does seem that there's this boundary dissolution that it has. Yes, I think oceanic boundlessness is like the science term that I never got around to putting in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you say that again? Oceanic boundaryless. Wait, how does it, how do you say boundlessness? It? Boundless. Like if you were to search into some uh, science paper search engine, that's what you would look for. Wow. Well, how would you define that? How would you define oceanic boundlessness? Uh, becoming one with your environment because you're the things, the neural networks that are responsible for your sense of self, like all of this is interconnected. <laughs> but, but those lessons, so you become more of everything surrounding you. And this is kind of the reason why you're environment setting is so important for the experience of it <laughs> i love that you become man. It, like, <laughs> yeah yeah you know it, it, i can see why psychedelics are so tied to like mysticism because it's there's so much expression and so much beauty that comes out of like poetry or mysticism it just begins to make sense when you embrace this oneness. And it, it kind of seems like that's a big part of the psychedelic movement. Like people that have pretty profound experiences or even people that may not be profound but have enjoyable experiences, they seem to be participating in that in that boundlessness. Like it's a it's kind of a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. Like everybody's the same as you, but also different. Like I'm just a guy. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing special about me. I just read a lot. <laughs> I am the guy in the chair talking, right? Like you can just begin to explain. Yes. <laughs> explain in ways. The present moment. Up. Like it's right here. <laughs> one of my one of the coolest. I want to share this cool. Well, I think it's cool. I had a really cool experience a while back when I started taking psychedelics on the regular and it was a, it was probably like six or seven years ago and there was a guy at my work and i was always mean to him graham like i just didn't like him and i'm like this guy's a dummy and and like <laughs> i remember some, one of my friends at work pulled me aside and they're like george why are you so mean to that guy i don't like him and i remember like shortly after that i had a really big experience with mushrooms and then i realized like you know what i am a giant asshole to that guy and the reason I am is because I think he's weak. But then I automatic as soon as I said it, I realized that I'm weak. And that I was just seeing my weak self in him. And I was like, man, I started crying a little bit. And I had to go apologize to that guy. But hey, man, I'm sorry I'm being a dummy. You know, I just said some mean things to you. And we're all I just humans it. here. Like, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> but it's it's such a cool experience. Like, even though it was tough to understand at first, like it was a really cool experience to to get to see, and, and then from that point forward, Graham, I, I realized that everything I see in somebody else is just me. Like whether it's good or if it's bad, then I'm like, oh man, that's me. Like I, that's something I should work on. That guy's really selfish. Oh, that means I'm selfish. I should probably 
maybe that that image is trying to show me what I need to work on. And ever since I like, I, that's one of the proudest moments I've had was how dumb I was. <laughs> that kind of makes sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean yeah. I think anger only comes out of being hurt mm. and like trying to process it somehow. Yeah. Like, there's other ways to process it, but I don't get angry very often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've had a really big reduction in anger and it, it does seem to me, there's a great quote that says hurt people, hurt people. And if you look at the people in your life that are really angry or they're having a lot of problems, it's, it's usually, stems from a trauma they have that they haven't figured out for themselves yet. And that's, that's what makes it so sad. I think in a lot of ways, but that, that also opens the door for people to help them. You know, if you can, if people can begin understanding, if they're willing that. to accept it. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Can't help people who don't want it. Yeah. Wasting energy. <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, that's kind of like how therapy works. Like you don't go into therapy and be like, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> the act of seeking it out first right is like getting the leverage on yourself yeah do you think everyone's that a rascal and you are too <laughs> <laughs> it's true man some of us more than others maybe we're all rascals just at different parts of our life you know i yeah do you think that like as we spoke about AI earlier, do you think that AI will be able to take the place of like a really good therapist? Like sometimes I, sometimes I think that the chatbots or the ability for AI to talk to us is really amazing. And it, it is programmed to keep our attention, but what do you think about the felt presence of the other? Is there, is there, is that there? Does that exist? It, it seems there's a, like a, the pheromones, the eye contact, these small micro you know, expressions, like, aren't those something that help heal us in a traumatic situation too? So the, the felt presence yes. of the other, like what do you think? AI I, can I'm extremely people? concerned with uh, people using AI for any sort of therapy because of the privacy implications of it and like selling of health data. Mm. I, mean, I don't really feel comfortable telling ChatGPT all of my mental health woes and then Microsoft going and selling that data. Mm. <laughs> It's like yeah. a huge, like, you don't need to know this about me. There's the like HIPAA violations. And, that's so that's part of the reason point. why I've worked for towards local models is because if we're going to attack that angle, it should be something that it's private. Yeah. Do you, do you think in, how does that strategy work? Is it the more free the code is then the 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 more the more private like that kind of seems like a paradox to me like yes. <laughs> <laughs> no if everyone can see the code then like there's nothing that's being hidden that's a big problem with ai right now is they're all kind of like black boxes so no one has any idea how they work but that's kind of like how a human body works too so uh <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's interacting with AI, like you need to know what's going on here. In support of that. Yeah, it does seem like a, an incredible amount of power and the, you know, the temptation that it can give somebody it must be overwhelming at times. If you had access or, you know, you were, wasn't chat, wasn't chat GPT like called open AI? Like they seem pretty far from yeah. open to me. 
Or are they? I've seen a lot of like unhappiness about that. <laughs> <laughs> they might have hmm. become more closed recently as like a profit incentive was introduced. I know that they have a good system set up where there's like a nonprofit and intertwine with them so that they only do funding in a certain way, but still the code isn't available. So eh. <laughs> what can people do, Graham, if they, if they want to kind of follow the footsteps of what you're doing? Like, let's say there's some young George out there. There's a young Graham out there and they believe that the way in which AI should be distributed should be a freer code. And they, they believe some of these ideas that they can really help humanity. Like, what what can they do? Get involved with the Free Software Foundation. Rep them. Nice. <laughs> they have a very uh, old philosophy for. I mean, there's like open source versus uh, Free Software Foundation. There's like drama and stuff, which I haven't decided on the Free Software Foundation side of it in terms of usage. Still, like if you want to help out AI, just get involved in a project. Like essentially, what everything surrounded to me is that. I got involved in hobbies and now they're like kind of changing everything. <laughs> this is a hobby to me. This is <laughs> <laughs> it is a what if you were to hold up your crystal ball and just make, you know, I think it was Yogi Berra who said predictions are hard, especially predictions about the future. But I'm just curious if you were to look at your crystal ball five years from now and 10 years from now, what do you think will be some of the biggest changes we see in five years? And then some of the biggest changes we see in 10 years. I read, I think it was an Elsevier paper that said like, there's some percentage chance that 90% of all jobs will be automated away. Like within five to 10 years. So uh, there's my prediction. Just something that a science <laughs> paper said. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> it's so but but that seems it seems incomplete to me because by look at how many jobs that chat gpt or this technology has kind of already created if you just look at people that are content creators now so in, is it saying that 97 percent of jobs that currently exist or is, is there like a qualifier on that like because won't other jobs like be currently exist <clears throat> That makes sense. 30% are like, no, it's 30% currently can just be automated away. And then like up to 90% within five to 10 years. Mm. Do you think that that opens the door for like a peer to peer sort of um, currency? Because what like that would fundamentally change the, the economic system as well, right? Yeah. I haven't really been involved in crypto much. My, my older brother is a banker, so he's not allowed to do anything with it whatsoever. So I'm kind of just, okay, you're the money guy. I'm going to follow your money advice. He's <laughs> <laughs> pretty smart. It's uh, That's kind of interesting. Like someone who's involved with a bank is not allowed. Anytime you're not allowed to do something, it kind of makes me want to do it. <laughs> you ever get that feeling? Uh, you have regulators everywhere surrounding you and it's <laughs> your job's depending on it i think you're going to be yes. pretty safe about it yes yeah but that sound that sounds to me like they're very anxious it sounds to me like they're scared you know I, and I, I don't know I, I don't know anything about crypto I've, I've i've bought some cryptocurrencies i've i've made some money i've lost some money and I, from what i've read there's some really fascinating ideas about how a world would look 
if you and I could exchange money together, just, hey, Graham, I want to buy your awesome book that you wrote. Here's a Bitcoin. Or, hey, George, I really like your podcast. Let me let me give you like a half a Bitcoin over here. You know, whatever we want to trade, it seems to me like it would be so much better if you and I could not have to have a percentage of that money taken away from us. Or if we do have a percentage taken away, Shouldn't we be able to dictate where that percentage goes, at least on a broad scope? Like I would like the, my percentage of the money that's taken from this transaction to go to schools. Like it just seems like it would yeah. provide us with a more of a voice in, in making a better world. Yeah, I fully agree with the ideals of it. Like, right. Uh, there's some issues with like whether it's a security or not. The SEC and Coinbase are going at it right now. Even like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce got involved. Like on mm -hmm. the Coinbase's side. Mm -hmm. So like, ugh, it's a new thing and they're still figuring out what to do with it. And there's crypto scams everywhere. Like people just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to, um, I was talking to this gentleman from Gemini, which is like a big crypto trading platform. And uh, we were just having a, a little chit chat and I had asked him something along the lines of, wow, it sure seems like there's a lot of crypto billionaires dying. And he was like, prove it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, whoa, oh, I, okay. oh, is he saying that they just didn't die? Is he saying that they've got new identities? Is he saying that it's just a bigger rug pull on top of a rug pull? You know, but like, <clears throat> it was very interesting the way the conversation led up to that point. And then just for him to walk, it's like a big mic drop. You just dropped the mic and walked away. <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe, I don't know, but it's fascinating to think about. You know, there was a um, there was a uh, a guy in his late twenties, I think, and I remember seeing I forgot what platform he was the head of, and and he was just very arrogant about a lot of things, and then he came to Hawaii and he was immediately, as soon as he stepped foot on American soil, he was immediately picked up and arrested and taken away and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I was like, whoa, this is a this, you can't you get me and then immediately <laughs> <laughs> famous last words, right? <laughs> <laughs> if anything, it's let me ask you this one, Graham. What I'm a big fan of mythology and I, I like to read and I I don't know if that makes me a primitivist. I don't know, but I think there's a lot of I don't think so. Yeah, right? Because I think that the ideas of like the hero's journey are still alive in us today. This idea of getting the call to to action and then facing a threshold guardian. Like I admire that. Or or, you know, if you look at the Nietzsche's the the camel to the child, like there's all these, you know, sort of symbolic pathways that are there for us to draw inspiration from. And and so I'm wondering. I'm not really aware of any new mythologies that are being created. And I'm wondering, do you see any new myths emerging? Maybe AI is part of a new mythology that's emerging. What do you think about that? I don't know if any new ones are emerging. Oh, because we're kind of living in the current mythology. Like, every, like we have mythologies. Isn't that just history, but then like consolidated into a more simple form? Yeah. It's everything is a yeah. story structure. That's that's how like language works. We have mythologies of like here's World War One. Like if we're reaching the end of people who are like if there even are any people left who lived it. So now there's yeah. just a mythology surrounding the actors in it. Mm. Yeah, I guess you can't. 
sometimes it helps me to try to think that way. Cause like if we look at our language from a story model, then for me, that helps me think of myself as the main character in the story. And when you do that, I think it helps see yourself from a third person point of view. And when you do that, you, at least for me, it helps me to live a better life. Cause it's like, okay, I want to be, I want to get the author's attention here. I want to be the, the, the hero in this story. I want to save the queen. I want to save the damsel in distress or help out the, the little kid over here. And I've, I've found that if you approach your life in that way, it helps. It really helps to sometimes give you the courage to do the thing, or sometimes it helps to maybe be a little delusional and believe in things that people wouldn't normally believe in. But yeah, I don't know. I, I like to, to try and approach my life from a story, from that kind of way of things. Is, is there a certain yeah. story you tell yourself? Is there a certain way you try to approach things that's, that's well, maybe you I think the crux of the change? matter, the crux of the matter is that everyone does that. So that's like how it, if you focus it on yourself, you're also focusing it in other people. Everyone is mostly concerned with themselves. And that's yeah. like kind of how you relate to each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great point. It's a paradox. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, everyone <clears throat> is inherently good because everyone thinks that they're the good guy. Because I think people, I think I'm the good guy. So I think everyone else does. Yeah. People I, just trying to I, make it through. They're just people. I think. A good rule of thumb is to think that everyone's doing the best they can with what they have. They 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 have a reason to do what they're doing. And sometimes that's enough to forgive. Sometimes that's enough to not judge, even though it's really hard. Like we, we always say we're, we try not to be judgmental, but it's so ingrained it's, in us. It is way more difficult to love than it is to hate. It's way more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. uh, this kind of ties into AI because I think humans just act out of the goodness of their heart. So I think there's not really an existential threat towards AI because it's trained on humans. So I think it will be good. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately <laughs> it's, it's humans that are training it. Right. So how can, in yeah. some ways, how can it not have our bias? How, I guess that's what you were saying with like the larger models that there's the, there's all that human emotion or this, that human understanding and lack thereof that go into training it. So how could it not have some of the same neurosis that we have? The problem is that like, it also has all the scams that we pull. <laughs> yep. It's good, but also, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's funny to think of it. Like it, there's always like the dark humor aspect of it too. Like I love dark humor. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. And I think, you know what? I think that there's that, that dark humor in psych in this, in the boundary dissolution of the psychedelic experience, you know, like, and maybe that I think dark humor is just a great therapeutic use because sometimes you find yourself in such a bad spot that all you can do is laugh. And when you, but when you do that, you're not crying, right? <laughs> it's crazy to think about. I do hold the belief that uh, comedians are kind of like cultural therapists because if you go back and watch any old comedians, then all their mimetic influence is already here. Like it's it permeated into everything. Yeah. And then like com comedy is a super difficult way to perform therapy, but I do think it's extremely useful when it's done right.
Yeah, that's really well said. I, I think so too. I, you know, especially well, from my angle, like I used to listen to like a lot of George Carlin and he would always talk about, you know, it's a big club. You know, there's, there's three banking companies and two insurance companies <laughs> and you're not in it and all this stuff. And like, now you could just say it's the big club and so many people know what that is, but it's a great example of someone who's just yelling, look, the emperor has no clothes. And it's such an important <laughs> model. <laughs> and media has only become more decentralized. Like back in the old days, I think you well, had three channels. Yeah. There's a lot more people centralized in that versus now. And that's kind of old media versus new media. I mean, that's what we're doing now is new media. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm in favor of that. Yeah. Me too. It's a big club, except it's <laughs> getting bigger. <laughs> 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 that should be the new tagline. I want to make that the new tagline. That's really funny. <laughs> what, what do you think about this, Graham? Like, it seems that attention is kind of like the new currency. You know, we talk about views, we talk about likes, and the the way in which some people are paid now is by the likes they generate, by the by the eye contact they generate, or however they're measuring it. But it does seem that we're moving into this currency of likes or you could even say dopamine and we and if we if we use that in conjunction with media do you see the landscape of media beginning to pay the content creators like it seems like it's kind of been going that way if we went from 3 channels to 12 channels to HBO mm -hmm. to cable and now you got TikTok YouTube Rumble and even smaller creators now they're getting a portion of it do you see that that pattern will continue to move in that way it's a little, there's a, a whinge in here and that a good portion of the internet is currently just like bots. Mm. So that kind of feeds into its, uh, the cycle of promoting something. So like you only watch a video that has a million views already. And then, and then you also have bots that do that. So that just projects it further. So I'm not, I don't really know how all this proliferation of AI is going to impact that because mm. you could just have bots that are, like you have AI and you have AI detectors, but the, I don't think the detectors are going to be as far ahead as the AI, AI just in general. Mm. So there's always going to be a, a battle between them, but bots are generally going to forward specific things that I don't know who, I guess people who control the bots. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Make it decentralized. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, I was talking to some other guys I that do podcasts and um they were, <clears throat> one of my friends was like, Oh, I like to tape everything and then I'll go back and edit it. And, and then we got into the idea of chat GPT and then the, you know, using AI to images. And then I'll, you know, I think the AI to video is probably not that far away. It seems to me like the, mm -hmm. the, the next best thing, like, I think one of the only things we really have left is like live. You know, and like, I think that there's something <laughs> to be said about the pauses and the interactions yeah. you have with people. Right. It's, it's the same thing I wanted to go on earlier, but I forgot. Being in person is always going to trump like uh, talking over any sort of video chat just because of those additional sensory modalities that are incorporated, like sense of smell and like just even like, I don't know, sense of time. Like. <laughs> yeah. Now that you say that, I think it's going to make us appreciate it more. It may make us in some, now that I think about it, you know, for a long time, especially when my kid was going to school for COVID, I was worried that 
not being in the presence of the other was going to make the ability to understand the micro expressions hmm? uh, um, a Oh, yeah. There's a like a trillion bacteria on everyone, and when you're with someone else, your bacteria is interacting with that person. And like the gut microbiome is such a it's another huge complex topic. <laughs> I gotta write that down. <laughs> think r slash human microbiome is like the main science area that i've looked at because they have a wiki somewhere yeah yeah man i like, see it's 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 opening up so many avenues that i i never would have thought of before and and on some levels <clears throat> maybe maybe being isolated from people on some level will help heighten our awareness when we're with them. I, you know, it would be an interesting to go and understand how those bacteria on your skin interact with other people. I've never heard that before, man. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's just a hypothesis. I have no oh. science supporting this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I support that it. If you have so much bacteria on you, then it's going to interact. <laughs> yeah, how can it not, right? <laughs> and that's like Grant, super involved, yeah. even with uh, mental disorders and stuff. Like you're gut microbiome there's neurons in your intestines there's serotonin receptors all of it's involved yeah you know i, I was i got to ask um I, w I went to this online seminar one time and i got to talk to dr dennis mckenna and uh we were talking about neurotransmitters and and um you know how it obviously how it affects the brain and stuff like that and i had raised my hand and i was like oh I was super stoked to talk to him oh you know kind of nervous and i'm like how do you think that the psychedelic uh, um, <clears throat> how do you think like psilocybin interacts with like the neurotransmitters in your gut? And he's like, I don't know. We're not talking about the gut. We're talking about the brain. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so dumb. I was like, oh man. But then he came back and he's like, listen, I'm not saying it's a dumb question. I think, I think maybe he thought about it. He's like, yeah, it's not a dumb question. He's like, and maybe he just saw my face and saw me get all sad, but he, uh, he's like, it's not a dumb question. He's like, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of really interesting things that happens, but yeah, I, yeah it's uh, people make better decisions when they trust their gut for like when they're picking out fruit than if they try to objectify it somehow. So it's, it's definitely important, even when it how it's connected to your brain. Yeah, thank you, Graham. I needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're valid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I did it. <laughs> yeah, it's it is a fascinating topic to think about. I am. Um, Graham, I'm coming up on about an hour and a half right here. I got to tell you, this was super awesome, man. I, I feel like I got to learn a lot. I feel like I had a, I got to get out some ideas that I'm thinking about. And I wasn't sure what to expect going into this conversation, but it exceeded all of my expectations, man. I hope that maybe in the future, if you're not busy, you can come back and talk to me again. Sure. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll reach out to you and maybe we can, maybe we can even get, I, what I want for my podcast is the next evolution to be me speaking to a few people at the same time. I want to try to experiment with making the tent a little bit bigger. And mm -hmm. I, I, I'm hopeful that if I can get the right people in at the same time, that it will be more of like a harmony that kind of comes through and just bouncing ideas off people, man. And I, I really enjoyed your perspective on a lot of things. I think you have a very unique perspective and I love the fact that you're willing to share it. And I had a lot of fun today, but before I let you go, what, what do you want? Do you want to shine a spotlight on anything like the free software project or like what, maybe if I gave you the platform to, to shine a spotlight on a few things, what would you say? 
Uh, well, for guests, I had just the scientific authors that I enjoyed the most. My favorite is David Nichols. And then I was talking about this earlier that I saw you interview Dr. Straussman. He's also a name that stands out to me in science papers. I think Follenweider, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's a name that stands out in Griffiths. So like okay. those are the people of all the science papers I've consumed have been the most salient towards me. And in terms of the stuff that I'm doing, I'm kind of waiting on the open RPG creative license orc by Paizo before I, I've had this idea to make everything into like gamify it like a, a Dungeons and Dragons type thing. So that's called Metapraxy, but I haven't really done much work into it. It's just whenever that license is done, I'm going to use that. <laughs> There's my spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. Yeah, I that would be fascinating to gamify everything in a Dungeons and Dragons sort of way. And in a, like, for me, it's back to the mystical. You know, it's Alfred North Whitehead coming in there from mysticism, Wisdom. clarification. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, Graham, I really enjoyed it. Um, hang on for one second. I'm going to hang up with the people, but I still wanted to talk to you for a quick second. And uh, to everybody watching, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, to everybody that made a comment, Ben, Arwa, everybody, thank you so much for, for taking a moment to hang out with us. And I hope everybody has a beautiful day. That's all we got. Aloha. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way. I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.